Genesis 3. While you're getting there, I'll set it up in this regard. We are coming off a series on the seven mountains of cultural influence. And have you ever noticed in a football game that they don't tackle the people on the bench? You guys haven't thought of that before? Are they not members of the team? They are. So why does the defense not tackle the players on the bench? Because they're not advancing anything, right? Right? So if, if we took seriously the last series, if, if some of you are, are headed into a mountain of cultural influence, if you are stepping foot with the gospel in your heart into an area with a redeemed view of how you worship God as you work on earth, if you step onto the field in that regard, then you will be subject to attack. Now, I'm not saying that Satan doesn't attack people that are lazy, that are complacent, but to be honest, he's a finite being with a finite number of minions, and they would rather spend their time on the field with the people who are putting in the work. Does that make sense? So we're coming off the cultural, the, the, the cultural mountains of influence. And I'll tell you this, when you begin to step out in faith, you will be subject to attack. You will be subject, though we all are in some regard, it will intensify the magnifying glass on your life. You will be subject to the schemes and the tactics of the enemy. And so we're heading into this series called schemes. And my, my kind of my anchor verse, there's our super dope graphic minimalist, but you get the idea done by Chris Begg right here, the bearded, lovely man over there. So, and our anchor verse, though we're going to be studying in Genesis three, our anchor verse comes out of second Corinthians two verse 11. This is out of the NIV. You may have a slightly different word here. This is where I draw that title. It says that we are to, in order to not be outwit, we are not to be unaware of Satan's schemes. We are not to be unaware. Your translation may say ignorant or of his design. All the idea is that he plans and he executes his schemes. And we are called, we are commanded to not be unaware of them. And so when you step into those mountains of influence, when you step onto the football field, know that there is a team on the other side that wishes to destroy you. And when you were merely on the bench, they didn't want to put in the time or the effort to take you out. But when you step onto the field and in the grand metaphor, you are advancing the kingdom as the Bible says we will do. You will be under a greater Scheme, you will be under a more intensified scheme. And so one of the great goals of the Bible, not the only one by any means, set up who Jesus is and all that you need to do to be, or all that he has done to be saved by him. But one of the secondary goals of the Bible is to equip Christians so that we are not unaware of his schemes. But I'll tell you this, a few years back, I taught a series called Jesus and Demons. I'm the weird guy that keeps preaching on demons. Okay. 
And when we taught that, it was Jesus and demons. And I said the same thing I'm going to say now. This is not a series primarily about Satan or his schemes, but about the renewing of your mind and the glory of the king. And so just as that series was not primarily about demons, it was primarily about the authority of Jesus. This is not primarily about the schemes of Satan, though we will discuss that because the Bible says don't be aware of them, but it will be about the greater purpose, the greater renewal that we have in the king. And so it's not primarily about the schemes of Satan. It's primarily about overcoming those schemes by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you this, if we are unaware, we will be caught off guard. If we are unaware, we will be caught off guard. And to be caught off guard, as any football team will know, as any sports player has found out, when you are unaware, you are at great risk of defeat. Militaries know this. I was in the military, but contrary to popular belief, don't really know much about military history. Everyone assumes that. They start throwing dates. What do you think about this battle? I'm like, I don't know. I just did what I had to do for six years and got out. Okay. Not a military historian, but I can tell you this, the world over, most military historians, most military tacticians agree that Pearl Harbor was arguably the greatest, most lethal surprise attack in military history. And it happened on U.S. soil. Most agree that this was the greatest example of the power of the element of surprise. It happened on December 7th, 1940. I'm so bad. My, my first son was born on December 7th and the nurses came in. They're like, Oh, Pearl Harbor day. I was like, what? No, it's my, it's my son's birthday. I'm like, he came in like a kamikaze. Ethan did. Okay. And so December 7th, 1941, this is the beginning of world war one. This isn't news for some of you, but I want to set it up. This was a surprise attack by Japanese forces on the U S Naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. I haven't been to Hawaii. It's one of the four states I have yet to get to. And I'm a scuba diver. I know that is unthinkable, but I know that you can go to the Pearl Harbor monument. Who's been anyone. And this is still so entrenched in our national identity that they've built a monument around it. And they've left the boat at the bottom of the ocean so that we can look and see how deadly being unaware can be. I'll give you a couple statistics. The attack lasted 110 minutes. I've taught longer than that. Most of you know. There were 353 Japanese aircraft, just 353 Japanese aircraft were deployed on this surprise attack. But listen to what they did. They destroyed 188 U.S. aircraft. They incapacitated eight battleships. They sunk four battleships. They killed 2,333 American service members. They injured 1,178 more, and only 65 Japanese servicemen were killed, and only 29 Japanese aircraft were lost. What it teaches you is that even if you have superior firepower, if you are unaware, the attack can cause defeat. And so we all know we have superior firepower. We know that the name of Jesus reigns above all for eternity forever. But you need to know that if we are unaware of the attack, you can suffer tremendous blows in your life and in the life of those around you. 
First Peter 5, 8 says, be sober. He's talking about being alert. And it says, be vigilant. It's militant language. It says, be militant. Your translation may say, be watchful. It may say, be alert. It may say, be on guard. It says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil walks around like a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may devour. And so the first call for us is to not be unaware that Christians have a literal enemy. This isn't a metaphor. It's not a picture. It's not a, a thought. It's, 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 not a, a mora- it's not a moral parameter. It is a literal being whose purpose is your destruction. In fact, Satan, the name itself is the Hebrew transliteration for adversary. When he was kicked out of heaven, he received the name Satan because in that moment he became an adversary. This means that Christianity is not a playground. It feels like it sometimes in Southern California, doesn't it? It's fine. It's fun. It's cool. Whatever. We're at church. No one's banging down the doors. We're not under persecution. It's good. We're fine. California's a little crazy, but nothing weird yet. It's not like first century Rome. It's fine. It's kind of a playground. We can do as we want. We can hop churches. We can figure it out. We can not be under pastoral authority. I'll figure it out. I'll YouTube it if I need it. If I got questions, I'll, I'll, I'll find someone on Twitter to follow. It can feel kind of like a playground. It's not a playground. Christianity is a battleground. You step onto the field, there's an enemy, a literal enemy. And he's not trying to annoy you. He's trying to destroy you. He's not trying to annoy you. He's trying to destroy you and everything you love and hold dear in this life and for eternity, he wants ripped from you. And if we are unaware of his schemes, we can usher in defeat. And so who is Satan? Let's talk about this real quick. We need to set that backdrop. Won't go into it for very long. Satan is a created angel. You need to know he is not creator. He is created. He is a created angel. And in the angelic ranks, He was of the highest ranking. He was not the poor guy in the angelic ranks, the disgruntled low-level worker. He was high level. It says in Isaiah 14, 13 through 14, that whole chapter, if you want to read about his demise, you can read Isaiah 14. In verses 13 and 14, it says that he in his heart said this, Lucifer, said this. He said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. Remember this. He said this. He said, I will be like the most high. I will be like the most high. I will be like God. I will be as God. And the Bible says that he gathered a third of the angels. The Bible also tells us that's innumerable. Angels are innumerable. We can't count them. We don't have numbers for as many as there are, but we do know that Satan gathered a third of them and convinced them to commit cosmic treason against God. No surprise, pick a fight with God, lose a fight with God. And Lucifer and his now fallen angels were kicked out of heaven, though they followed him into battle under the guise of, I will be like the most high. 
they realized they could not be as the most high and they were kicked out and they were cast out and now they are roaming about seeking whom he may devour and Satan commands a legion of demons. And I want to draw this because I hear this a lot and it's not like I get all nerdy and start correcting people, but everyone comes up saying, man, I'm really, Satan's really coming after me. Here's, I want you to find comfort in this. Chances are it's not Satan. You know why? And people are like, what? I'm like, trust me. He has more, sorry, no more important things to do than work on you. I know you think you're star quarterback and all that, but probably not. Here's the thing. Satan does not carry the attributes of God. He cannot be in all places at once. Therefore, he can only be in one place at any given one time. Chances are you're dealing with a demon, not Satan. Don't give him attributes that he doesn't have. He can't be in all places at all times. He doesn't know all things for all of eternity. He is not like the most high. He is created. He is not creator. So chances are Satan hasn't been assigned to you. I'm sorry. I'm not doing big enough things to attract Satan, to fly around the globe, say, oh, I really need to focus on Mark. He has demons. I've experienced them twice in my life. By the way, both since starting ministry. Never really before. But chances are it's not Satan. It is one of his demons because he commands a legion, a third of an innumerable force. And by the way, angels are amazing. Therefore, demons in one respect are Amazing. Bible says that they are wise on the angelic side, wise, holy, strong, smart. They communicate, they plan, they plot, they execute. They are the angels were messengers of God. They were executors of wrath of God. And so these are amazing beings. And Satan commands a third of the fallen angels to carry out the schemes. And so tonight we're going to take a look at the first and foremost scheme that Satan will use in this world against you, not to annoy you, but to destroy you. And it's called what I'm calling very simply the lie. It's the lie. And so we opened up to Genesis three. We're going to take a look at verses one through seven. I'm going to hop in and out of text and give you a little commentary along the way. But what I really want to do after we unpack this is show you how Jesus is greater than the schemes of Satan. And so it says this, it says, now the serpent was more cunning. Again, Genesis three, verse one. Now the serpent was more cunning. So here's the backdrop. Everything has been created both in the heavenly places and on earth by Jesus. As we're going to see, he's created mankind in his image and likeness. He brought Adam and Eve from nothing into something. Everything is perfect. Everything is going Great. And at some point we know that there was cosmic treason in heaven and Satan was cast down to earth. And here is his entrance. He slithers in inhabiting the body of a serpent. Look, if you're new to church, it's a little weird. I admit it. It says this, it says, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God has made. And he, that's the serpent gets a little weird. Just got to assume that God's telling the truth on this one. Okay. It says, and he said to the woman, this is Satan inhabiting the body of a serpent. Now I'll admit, I was just at the zoo yesterday with my kids. Snakes freak me out. They always have since I was a kid. I've scuba dove with sharks. I've handled spider. I don't care. Whatever your thing is, I'm probably cool with it. Not snakes. Not snakes. Not down with them. Snakes are freaky. Talking snakes are demonic. 
Okay? Not all snakes are demonic, but the ones that talk are. You can take that one to the bank. Okay? Snake slithers in, starts talking, cut its head off. Please do me that favor. It's your pastor. Let me know. Instagram it or something. I'm not going to come near it, but text it to me. Okay? And he says this. He says, he says to the woman, has God indeed said, he begins by casting doubt. Has God said, he begins by casting doubt on the revealed word of God. And many commentators point out that in the original language, he's not just actually asking, he's like, hey, did God say this? Commentator says he has a sneer. He goes, really? Is that what God said? Come on, man. Barbaric. You're going to keep you from that tree? What kind of God is that? I'm going to give you all this, not that tree? He's sneering. He has a condescension about it. Are you kidding me? Is God really going to not let you enjoy the fullness of this tree? How petty, how domineering of God. Oh, he's trying to keep you from the pleasurable things of this world. It says he's sneering and he wants to produce an attitude of sneering condescension for what God has said. And I'll tell you this, because I love you and I'm your pastor, there's entire preaching ministries based off this. Simply questioning and sneering at the barbaric things of God. Really? Oh, marriage is that? Come on, it's 2017. Really? Sex only inside of marriage? Come on, we're all adults. There's entire successful, well-spoken, well-polished authors and bloggers and pastors that make their entire living off casting doubt on the word of God and sneering at what he has said very clearly in the scriptures. And I can say this without a doubt, it is satanic. Did I put emphasis on that? We good? Take, everyone take a breath. All right, here we go. Satan wants to produce that attitude of sneering condescension for what God has said. And he says this, he says, you, so has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the certain, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of this tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. True or false? That's what God said. That's not what God said. You could make the assumption that Eve in this moment is already beginning to have a sneering condescension toward the things of God and making what he has said more harsh than what he actually said. And she's quite possibly starting to, yeah, he said, man, we can't can't have it. We can't even touch it or we're going to die. It's not what God said. You can read it in Genesis 2. Eve's likely taking on the attitude of sneering condescension, twisting God's words to make it more harsh than they actually are. She's beginning to view God as restrictive rather than protective. She's beginning to view God as a rule maker rather than a life giver. She's beginning to view God as a taker rather than a creator. And it says that, nor you should touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, verse four, you will not surely die. And all throughout the Bible and all throughout your life, this is what Satan will do. He will say, God's judgment won't actually come. You're fine. You're fine. 
people won't actually be punished for their sin. Really? You believe? I mean, he's a loving God he, that he would punish. Don't worry about that. Judgment won't actually come. And this is a primary strategy within this scheme is to get people to think that judgment won't come or to get people to not even think about it in the first place. Have you ever met those folks? Maybe they've come to church a couple times. Maybe they have. They're not put off by the gospel. They're not offended by church. They're not offended by Christianity. They just don't really have time for it. They don't really think about it. They don't really care about it. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician, physicist, inventor, writer, and ultimately Catholic theologian said, busyness sends more people to hell than unbelief. People that simply are just too busy to even think about eternity getting through life, doing all the things that need to be done. And they come to the end and they haven't thought about the single greatest question is where will you be for eternity? And he says this, he says, for you will not surely die. And so he stirs in us this question about about God's judgment. He says, for God knows that in the days you will eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Sound familiar? He says, knowing good and evil. This is the lie that Satan believed. It makes sense that he pass it on. He says, you will be like God. He presents the bait while hiding the hook. Satan will constantly show you the fleeting pleasure of your sin while hiding the long-term destruction of it. I know this in my old life or in, in my own life. Those of us that are starting to get a little later in life will attest to it. The young people, maybe you haven't figured it out yet or you will soon, but people tend to in their early in their life not see the long-term destruction. I would, I would encourage you to be in fellowship with people that are a good 20 to 30 years older than you so that they can pour into you about the lifelong ramifications of sin. Don't just get into your small group with your college kids saying, everything's fine. I mean, I sin, nothing happened. Talk with people that have been in sin for 30 and 40 years, seen the 30, 40 year outcome of sins, even if they've stopped the ramifications Satan will constantly show you the fleeting pleasure while hiding the long-term destruction. He'll show you the fleeting high rather than the long-term addiction. He'll show you the fleeting drunkenness rather than the long-term health and family issues. He'll show you the fleeting materialism rather than the long-term credit card debt. He'll show you the fleeting lust rather than the long-term relationship issues, whether that's premarital sex or porn. And the secular world is just coming up with sciences. Apparently porn makes guys not identify with women. I'm glad when the secular culture finally catches up with the things that God said thousands of years ago is that that lust will destroy your relationships, even if you're not touching her. And ladies, numbers are on the rise for you too. Don't just look at the guys anymore. He will show you fleeting anger rather than the long-term pain and distrust. He will show you fleeting greed rather than long-term dissatisfaction with that which you have. Over and over, he will present the bait but hide the hook. And the promise of Satan's number one scheme is that we will be like God. And it's no surprise that many cults make the same promise. Mormonism tells you, you will be what? You'll be a God. It's demonic. Many cults have started by saying, you will reach deity, Easternism, Westernism, all the world around. Godhood is at the core of that promise. 
that you can be the center of the universe, that you can be the center of truth in the world, that you can be like the one who created you. Therefore, it's you who is ultimately responsible for your eternal destiny. And whether you go legalism, whether you go liberalism, it's all about us at the center. And that's the number one lie. So for us, where in our life do we believe we're the center of the universe? Where in our life do we believe that we're the arbiter of truth? Where in our life do we see ourselves acting as God? This is the portion that struck me the hardest. Maybe that's why I'm trying to glaze over it real fast as I've been studying is because I love to play God, especially as I get higher up in the corporate sense. I get to actually play a mini God because what I say goes a lot of times as a director in my company. And they say, then we'll yield to you. If you believe it, Mark, that's you. And I start to play God. Then I start to apply God other places in life and come up against barriers. But I command this during my day job, but it doesn't work, let's say in ministry. And so the temptation is real to play God where we are not God because ultimately within us, we've been believing this lie and this lie has has murmured through all of human history that we can be like God from Genesis 3 until right now. And so for us, where in our life do we believe we're center, that we're the truth, that we are God? And check this out, guys. It doesn't get very good for us here in a second. It says, for God knows that in the days you will eat it, and your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, no surprise, women like pretty things. You ever been on Pinterest? Okay, we'll move on. And so it says that it's good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes. They like pretty things, gentlemen, and the tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband, and he ate. What was he doing? Nothing. Oh, the women brought sin. Really? Where was Adam? I should see how this goes down. Now he knew and understood what God said. God said, if you eat of it, you'll die. If you thought about this, he's standing there going, I wonder if she'll die. (laughs) Did he not know that it would kill her? God said it. Did he believe it? Perfect fellowship. And he stood there and did nothing. It's morbid to think about, but I'm not kidding. He was very much like, I I wonder if what God said is true. Did he jump? Did he stop her? Did he protect her? Was he ahead? No, he failed. Gentlemen, you need to know that our first sin was not rebellion. It was passivity. And we're reeling from this in America. We are reeling from passive men in this culture. He did nothing. Men, you will continue, whether you are married right now or not, we will continue to struggle with standing passively by while Satan devours our wife and our children. I wish I could do about four hours on that. We have to move on. It says this, it says, verse seven, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. It says to understand Satan's first scheme. We have to remember that deception precedes rebellion. A hundred percent of the time, if we've rebelled, it's because we first, whether of our own knowledge or that we were simply unaware were deceived. Deception precedes rebellion. The promise of sin is appealing. 
Bible says that sin is what for a season? Disgusting? No. That's how you know men didn't write the book. Right? Everything we think is upside down. We live upside down. God restores it. He says, no, I, it's going to be sweet for a season. But a season is an eternity. So deception precedes rebellion. The promise of sin is absolutely alluring. But it will leave you naked and ashamed. It's been said that sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you there longer than you want to be, and cost you more than you want to pay. And again, young folks, get into fellowship with some folks that aren't as young as you. Older folks, pour into them about the long-term ramification. Younger folks, be open to that and that correction now. But at this point, I want to enter King Jesus. This isn't just about unveiling the schemes of Satan. It's about the superiority of the gospel and the king. Enter King Jesus. This is creator God, not created being. Colossians 1, 16 through 18. I'm going to read some Bible. You guys okay with Bible? Can we talk about this book tonight a little bit? Even more? You good with it? You can get it anyways. So it says, for by him, that's Jesus, all things were created. You guys know this. I arguably, if I had to read one chapter for the rest of my life, it would probably be Colossians 1. It says in, in verses 16 through 18, for by him, that's Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. So the, everything that's spiritual, everything that's physical, Jesus created it. In the beginning, God created. Jesus went to work. It says he created all things, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Don't let cults spin that. That just means that he was the first one to overcome death, the firstborn from dead, that in all things, and no, Lazarus wasn't either because he was resuscitated and they died again. Jesus resurrected to never die again. All right. And he says that in all things, he may have preeminence. This is not created Satan. This is creator King Jesus, that all things be preeminent in him, that the schemes of Satan would simply drive us to look up to the savior, Jesus. This is God who became man, not to deceive God's children, but to re- to retrieve God's children. It says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The Jehovah's witnesses have added the word a, but it's not there. They say it was a God. It's not true. They had no one work on their translation that understands the ancient language. They just added a word to fit their theology. It says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, that's Jesus. And the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us that we beheld his glory, the glorious to the only begotten of the father, full of grace, not schemes, full of grace and not lies, full of grace and truth. What ultimately matters is what Jesus says about you, not what Satan says about you. We'll get to the accusing later in the series. Who Jesus says you are, not who your friends say you are, not who your parents say you are, not who your Instagram following says you are. It's who Jesus says you are. And when you're in him, you're perfect. You're redeemed, you're complete, you're restored, you're healed. This is John 1. It says the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
One of my favorite things to tell people when they come to me for micro sessions of counseling is I, I start by saying, you know, you're clean, right? Most of us feel dirty. I've sat there a couple times with college students, one that had impregnated his girlfriend. You could just see it. He just felt dirty. I started, I said, you know, you're clean, right? And the healing starts is that he sees you as clean. We'll work on the kinks, but he sees you as clean. Why? Because it's about what he's done, not what you're doing. So this is creator God who became man to usher in God's kingdom to his people and God's people into his kingdom. Jesus showed up. The first words out of his mouth when he began his teaching ministry were these, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We don't like repent. We've abdicated that word to the the freaks in the South that hold signs that say, repent or perish. God hates fags. And they protest military funerals. Now there's entire legions of motorcyclists that have to go around to these funerals to protect them from the guys holding the repent signs. Jesus offers it as a gift. He said, it's a good thing. It's not about what you do for me anymore. It's about what I'm going to do for you. Repent and believe in the gospel. The application is to those of us who have believed and lived out this lie that we can be like God, that we are the center of the universe, that we get to dictate truth, that we get to act as God. Tonight, we all, myself included, get to repent. I imagine, the Bible doesn't say, but I imagine Jesus smiled. Coming out of the legalist system, he said, look, I'll tell you, you get to repent and believe in the gospel. God come as man to usher God's kingdom to his people and God's people into his kingdom who came not to question the will of God, but to be in submission to the will of God. People say submission is such a bad word. Ladies, you're going to hear that from culture. You go through biblical marriage counseling, you're going to hear submission if you do it right. My wife and I do a lot of premarital. We talk about submission. We spend extra time with the ladies in submission. You, you think that that word is bad. If it's so bad, then why would Jesus be about it? If the calling on your life was so oppressive to be submitted, then why, why wouldn't it have been oppressive for Jesus to be the same? In Luke 22, as Jesus is in the garden headed to the cross, And he's not just headed to a beating. He's not just headed to having his his beard plucked out or to get sucker punched or to have a crown of thorns put on his head. He's not even headed to a scourging. He's headed to the place where he will absorb the almighty wrath of God. That's the conversation he's having. He's not asking him to take the crucifixion away. He asks him, he says, father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. It's the cup of God's wrath. He says, if there's any other way apart from you pouring out the entirety of wrath for the sins of mankind, past, present, and future, if there's any other way, he says, take it from me. Nevertheless, he says, not my will, but thy will be done. This is creator God who came as man to usher God's kingdom into his people, God's people into his kingdom not to question the will of the father, but to be in a submission to the will of the father and to reconcile. And that means make compatible again. I do this a lot. I love my nerd words. Reconciliation, it it means to make compatible again. You know why? We're not compatible. Why? We've sinned. 
We've broken fellowship with God. Adam and Eve broke fellowship with God. And so Jesus, in order to make us compatible again, came and spanned a chasm that we couldn't span to make sinful man and holy God compatible again. A God that can have no darkness in him, no deception, no lies, no schemes, no sin, and no sinner can be in fellowship with God. So Jesus came and said, then it'll be about what I do. And when I cover them with righteousness, you'll be compatible again. And so that's how we're able to be perfect as our father is imperfect as the Bible calls us to be. Why? Because when we take off our robe of wickedness and we put on the robe of righteousness, God sees us as perfect. Though we understand our sin, he looks at us through the lens of Jesus, not our sin. And when he sees Jesus, he sees perfection. That's why the Bible says we're in Christ. So he came to reconcile perfect God and sinful man. Colossians 1, I'm telling you, read Colossians 1 tonight, 19 through 21. It says, for it pleased the father that in him all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross and you who were once alienated and enemies, you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. That's why we cling to Jesus so that we're judged on what he has done, not what we have done. If indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. The good news Colossians continues in verse 27. It says to make to them, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Anyone here? Not Jewish. Raise your hand. Don't be just raise your hand. We don't come to church or raise your hand. We're all Gentiles. And if you're Jewish, you've been grafted in. Okay. Okay. Among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so Satan comes with his schemes. He will tell you that you can be like God. Jesus comes in and says, God will come get you and save you on a cosmic rescue mission to retrieve you in the person and the work of Jesus. And faith, listen, faith by itself doesn't save you. So that's heresy. It must be faith in the right object. If I'm drowning and I have faith in a Skittle, chances are I drown. Might taste the rainbow on the way down. But unless my faith is in a lifesaver and that lifesaver comes to me, I drown. Faith in and of itself, every religion in the planet has faith. But Christianity is about the faith in the lifesaver who came into the pool to get us out. Everyone else preaches a God you get to. Only the God of the Bible is the one that came to. And so the promise of the gospel is not to find hope within ourselves, but despite ourselves. The promise of the gospel is not fleeting pleasure, but eternal paradise. The hope of the gospel is not that we can be like God, but that we are loved by God. The promise of the gospel is not that we are naked and ashamed, but that we are clothed and redeemed. The promise of the gospel is not that we can save ourselves from our sins, but that we ourselves have been saved despite our sins. The hope of the gospel is not that we will not surely die, but that Jesus surely died so that we might live. 
The hope of the gospel is not that we are subject to the destruction of Satan's schemes, but that we are subject to the protection of Jesus, the King. The schemes of Satan are no match for the promises of God. And 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Tonight we say no to schemes and yes to a savior. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for getting into the pool that our faith would not be wasted on an object that could not save us. That we put faith in you because you came to retrieve us, not to deceive us. We have an enemy, but even better than that, we have a king. And Jesus, you're a good king. You're a loving king. So much that you came to rescue the children that were lost. And so I pray for us tonight as we go into a time of musical worship and prayerful worship and communal worship that we would not fixate on the schemes of Satan, that we would be aware of them, but that we, we, we would be in awe of you. God, that we would be aware of his schemes, but in awe of our Savior. Jesus, we love you. For those who don't, I pray that in their heart tonight, they would say thank you for rescuing them, that they want eternity with you. We don't want to be like God. Jesus, we want to be with God for eternity. And you're the only one that can reconcile us and make us compatible again. So Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. We lift you up higher. I pray pray that we've replaced any idols that we've put in your throne and we take those down and bow at your feet. Says, come boldly before the throne of grace. We can come to you boldly, not sheepishly, boldly, knowing that you'll give us that which we can't even fathom if we but surrender to you, Jesus. And so I pray that we would be deeper in you tonight for our good, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.